Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. My name is Podcast Mike, doing the intro for this week's very special episode with Andrew McCarthy. Andrew McCarthy is an American actor, writer, and television director, best known for various roles in many films throughout the 80s, including St. Elmo's Fire, Pretty in Pink, and one of Will's favourites, which is talked about in this episode, uh, Weekend at Bernie's. And this is a, a great chat with someone who was a huge star of the 80s. And, and as Will puts it, one of the most famous people in the world in a specific time frame. Uh, Will and Andrew talk a lot about his experience with coming into a lot of fame very, very quickly in the 80s, being a member of the Brat Pack, and a lot about his philosophies towards work, travel, and many other topics. And if you'd like to know more about Andrew, his book Brat, an 80s story, is available now, so go and check that out. If you're into acting, we've had a lot of actors on Willosophy in the past, including chats with Eddie Perfect, uh, Ronnie Cheng, or if you'd like to listen to some of our other international guests on Willosophy, we have spoken to people like UK comedian Russell Howard, as well as uh, US-based comedian Beth Stelling. So please scroll up in the feed. There are plenty of amazing Willosophy chats that uh, we implore you to listen to all of them. In the meantime, you can support Willosophy by going to patreon.com slash Willosophy. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep the lights on here uh, for everyone who works behind the scenes on the show. And uh, if you sign up to the Patreon, you can access these episodes ad-free a day early uh, right there on Patreon. And if we do get to a consistent $5,000 a month on Patreon, we will be able to release two episodes of Philosophy a week, which we are slowly moving towards. Thank you so much for your ongoing support of this show. We really appreciate it. But now I'd love to pass it over to Will and Andrew for this fantastic episode of Philosophy. Enjoy. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and very excited about today's guest. This is how the show starts, guests. So I ask the guests who they are. So who are you? Who am I? Andrew McCarthy. (laughs) Hello, Andrew McCarthy. Uh, Sometimes people follow that with something, Andrew. What would you normally say when people ask you to describe who Andrew McCarthy is? Well, my jobs are, uh, I'm an, I've been an actor for a long time, forever, and I am a travel writer and a, a television director, father of three, husband, terrible golfer. Uh, yeah, I guess that's that start. <laughs> That is a that is a good start, and I, I, we probably won't spend as much time talking about this as you know the fact that you've written a new book called Brat, and it's absolutely fantastic about a particularly uh, important time in your life. But travel is obviously a huge passion of yours. You have written about travel. You've talked about your passion of travel. You've made television about you know your passion for travel. In this last year when the entire world has been shut down, when we haven't been able to travel from place to place, international borders have been shut. What has that been like for a person like you who travel is such a huge part of your life? Well, the pandemic aspect of it aside, 
which is hard to set it aside. It's actually in the travel world part been kind of wonderful in that it just it took it off the table entirely. But I spent the much of the last year in one place and in the country, whereas I usually live in the city, in New York City. And so I spent it in the country. So I was able to watch the daily increment. I mean, it sounds very boring, the daily incremental changing of the seasons from fall to winter to spring to summer. And it was absolutely sort of an amazing. I've never done that in my life. I've always been moving, moving. And so to sit in one place in the same backyard and see the birds come, oh, now the swallows are coming. And now that, you know, to see that is, was really kind of an amazing gift because I can't imagine sitting still for that long if I didn't have to. So th that's been kind of great. Uh, one of my favorite descriptions of life is that you've got to know what you're running to or what you're running from. And I think with people who love to travel, it falls into one of those two categories. Are you running to things or running from things when you pack your suitcase and go traveling? No, oh, well, the truthful answer would be both. Uh, or, you know, it depends. It depends uh, on the stand. <laughs> but um, I do find that I'm uh, why I initially started traveling was that I... Uh, I walked across the Camino de Santiago in Spain, you know, for 500 miles. And I found that I found myself in doing that. So I continued traveling for just that reason. The more, I, the farther away from home I got, the more at home in myself I became. So I kept uh, traveling and that, that and eventually that led into being a travel writer. But because um, I found travel to be a really profound thing, it changed my life. It helped me feel safe in the world in a way that I never did before I started traveling. And so, so that parent. so that is the, at the heart of what this show is about, which is you know why we do things, what those things tell us about ourselves. So tell me about that first real travel experience where you say you found yourself. What did that look like? What does that mean when you say that? Well, I I was so the Camino is you know it's this ancient pilgrimage route, and so I was walking. I read a book about it, and I. I don't know why I read the book <laughs> and I don't, the minute I finished it though, I said, I'm going to go do that. And it was right at the period where I was getting, you know, I'd been successful in movies and was just sort of feeling a little lost. And so I read this book randomly and I said, I'm going to go do that. And I got on a plane and I went to Spain and I started walking and I hated it for a couple of weeks. It was just miserable. I was lonely and blisters. I would have gone home, except I told, bragged everybody that I was going to go walk to Spain so I couldn't show back up home. So, Anyway, and I was miserable and hating it. And I, and then one day I was in a field, I was walking through a field of wheat and in the high mistake and, you know, it's, it's hot and the sun's beating down and just sweaty and just trudging along. And I suddenly found myself on my knees, sobbing, screaming up at God, all the things my good Catholic upbringing would tell me, I'll go straight to hell for saying. And I, and I just was weeping and I didn't know why even. I was just, and then eventually my tantrum subsided you know, my limousine did not come to pick me up and I kept trudging on to the next town. And the next day I woke up and I started walking again. And you walked about 20 miles a day or so and 15 miles. And so I was trudging along and I felt like I'd for forgotten something and I was forgetting something. And, but I couldn't, like, I was checking my backpack and I had everything. Anyway, I, I eventually sat down, have a little rest and have some cheese and a glass of little sip of water. And I suddenly had this, I was aware that I could see things more clearly, like, I could hear birds call and respond and the colors of like the tractor were very bright and the earth was this umber and it was, it was just very, I felt very awake. And suddenly this realization sort of dawned 
up on me, but it felt like it was coming from across the horizon, like coming toward me. And I realized in other words, that what I didn't have, what I had forgotten, what I wasn't carrying with me that day, what I had always been carrying with, with me was fear. And I wasn't aware even of its existence in my life until that moment of its first absence, you know, and that moment changed my life. When I became aware of how dominant I was by dominated I was by fear, that I that changed my place in the world. Because of course you become aware of something like that and it starts to, you know, dissipate. Of course, fear is a potent foe, and so it just keeps coming back. It's like water, it just keeps seeping back in and seeping back, and it's you know constant. But that 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 moment of having that experience really changed me, and I latched onto it, and I knew that it was profound and real, and it was um I knew that that it was to be honored, you know. And so that's what started me traveling, and so I kept traveling because I wanted more of that feeling. So I kept traveling, and that eventually led to a career of doing that because I loved doing it so much. It was the same thing as like with acting. I, when I was a kid and I discovered it, I loved doing it. I felt like myself when I did it. So then I suddenly felt like myself when I was travel writing and it was sort of the same job to me because it just felt like me. So anyway, that's a long winded answer for you. <laughs> this, this podcast is all about long winded answers and that was a brilliant answer. I'm very interested in the relationship between when you do something for fun and then you make it your job. So you talk then about loving acting and then of course acting becomes your career. It changes your life in substantial ways. You love traveling, but then traveling becomes part of your career. Have you found that making it a job changes your relationship with something you were just doing for fun? Not if you stay awake. Um, if I just let it become a, a routine and sort of, then it, I suppose it can. Uh, no, if I stay in the why I'm doing it in the first place, then no, it just goes deeper. You know, uh, the the challenge with that is always other people and not letting, uh, you know, <laughs> letting their whatever needs or agendas, you know, frustrate and you know the, those dynamics, you know, become a frustration and so. That, that would be the challenge is sort of keep keep dusting off the front porch, you know, and just sort of get, getting back to why you did it and why you do it. It, it occurred to me, um, I've heard you say a few times about the idea of suddenly becoming one of the most famous people on the planet. It almost changes your DNA. It changes you at a structural level. Can you take me back to that moment of becoming super famous. This is what you explore a lot in your new book, Brat, is a period of time where you were associated with this, you know, sensation really, which was called the Brat Pack, a Hollywood, you know, group of actors coming through together. They were really branded that by the media. It wasn't necessarily that you were all hanging out together, but you made a few movies together. It became a phenomenon, a global phenomenon, something that people still talk about today. What was it like being a kid who loved acting, suddenly becoming one of the most famous people on the planet? Well, I have to take exception a little bit. I don't think I was one of the most famous people on the planet, but to a certain generation, I was at this epicenter of their pop culture experience. But, you know, I don't know how... It wasn't Muhammad Ali, you know. <laughs> I mean, so Andrew, all I'm going to say is, I grew up in a dairy farming community of 250 people in country Victoria, and I knew who you were, which counts as world famous. I think. <laughs> um, well, that you know, I guess that's a place. So I just didn't understand it or realize it at the time in a certain way. You know, I mean, I knew that my life was changing when the first day I walked into a a mall in Los Angeles. I lived in New York and so I never, we didn't have malls. So I went into a big mall in Los Angeles and 
suddenly people were coming up to me in a way that was like, whoa. And so I realized I had to get out of the mall. And I realized kind of that <laughs> things are different, you know? Um, and, you know, I, I, you know it's, I, I've often said I don't, wouldn't wish success on anyone under 30. And I think that's true. I think in your 20s, you're trying to figure out your place in the world, who you are. And success is, you know, hollow ground to try and find your feet on. And it, it has, fame has no intrinsic value of it of itself you know so i found it to, to be challenging in in the sense that you know i've heard people globally say that, that whatever age you are when you get famous that's where you stop developing emotionally and i think that's you know has some truth in it, it it's like you're a little kid and you you're the center of the universe and they, you're treated as if you're the center of the universe then you go out into the world and you start to discover that your mother was wrong and you're maybe not the center of the universe and then you become famous, and then suddenly you are the center of the universe. And all those kind of things that that normal developmental things of developing empathy and in curiosity in other people and compassion, all these kind of things are are stymied a little bit, and if the focus turns back on you when at a certain you know when the focus needs to be sort of getting out and inclusive of other people in the world and so it takes real active effort to turn that back out and to try and engage with you and you and you and as opposed to it being about me and that takes an active will to do that but i think that takes an active will all the time in our lives um that not be so self-centered um but with fame it's just sort of tripled you know and things that you are not really doing very well people tell you you're doing great and to be able to kind of go you know what that's just not true <laughs> um it's challenging because we all want to be treated special we all want to feel unique and we all want to get a nice table to restaurant so i mean you know it it's a weird beast and i do think it's i'm a very i'm a different person now than what i would have become had i not become famous in my 20s you know I heard Steve Martin once say, I used to be, I was too famous and now I'm famous just right. And I, I kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, so it was a lot. It was a lot when I was getting, you know, I used to have a drinking problem and I was drinking simultaneously to that. So that was a challenge. Um, I didn't, you know, I'm always quick to say that I didn't drink because I became famous because so many people want to do that kind of cliche thing. Oh, you got it too soon. So you drank. And I'm like, no, I drank because I had a real affinity for alcohol. And, you know, it certainly intertwined with my career and adversely affected my career. Yeah, absolutely. But I, it, it didn't cause my success did not cause my drinking. So, you know, and when you're drinking, you're just sort of distancing yourself from yourself and obfuscating who you are from yourself. And that's never a good thing. It feels, you know, it, the tricky thing about drinking is that it, it feels like it's leading you in this good direction and then it turns around at a certain point without you knowing it and sort of takes you there's one i actually said in the book that i really like that sums it up you know a man takes a drink then the drink takes a drink then the drink takes the man and i think that's that was my experience so anyhow i digress but uh, well it's interesting to me though to see that reflection i mean this is one of i think the most impressive things about brat and i've had an opportunity to quickly read about three quarters of it and it is compelling not just because of the stories of that era which of course you know everybody is interested who grew up in that era is interested in some of the stories of that era but you really do explore your drinking you explore your relationship with your father are these things that you needed 
distance from those times to be able to properly reflect on? Well, I didn't need distance to talk about my drinking or my dad particularly, but the reason they're in the book is that the book is about the 80s and that chunk of time and what happened to me in that time. And I can't talk about, it's like a three-legged stool. I couldn't talk about one without the other. There are three dominant things that happened where I became successful in the movies. I had a drinking issue and I had a complicated, fraught relationship with my father that got worse the more successful I got. And so those three things were all intertwined and to talk about any one without the other would have been just just the pieces of the puzzle would have been missing. And so I felt they needed to be in there. I was, the first draft of the book was just largely about the career stuff. And then it just felt like, well, I'm not giving, I'm not coming clean here with the rationale for why this happened or why that influenced that. And my drinking influenced that and my relationship with my dad influenced my making that decision. And it all is, all together, it's one thing. The stool would have tipped over if I didn't have all three aspects in it. So, you know, I think if you're going to talk to somebody and come clean, you have to come clean with them on the page because you want their investment and you want them to, it's a relationship you're having in a book. You know what I mean? It's very intimate. People take you to bed with them at night, you know, and they, you know, and you're alone with them in their bedroom and they, you want to create some kind of, yeah, you want people to nod their head. I had a totally different experience. I grew up on a farm with 200 people, but I, I know the feelings that you had. You know what I mean? And that's what you want. You just want to create, I identify with you on a human level. I wasn't interested in telling, uh, making a book about a bunch of great stories. I mean, sure, hopefully there's some wonderful, crazy stories in there that happen to a human. <laughs> you know what I mean? And this is the human they happen to. Yeah, I, I mean, that is one of the more fascinating things about it. It is that you're a human who's suddenly sitting next to Liza Minnelli. You're a human who's suddenly at a party at Sammy Davis Jr.'s place. These yeah. are incredible stories. But I think the man comes through so much, which is, the I think, the most impressive part of it. Tell me about when you have a complicated relationship with your father, then that idea of becoming a father yourself – um, how, how is that? Did you have nerves about what sort of father you were going to be based on the relationship you'd had with your own father? Well, I very much wanted a girl, the first child, because I didn't want to have to, <laughs> but, you know, and of course I had a son the first is my first child was a son. So it's like, yeah, okay. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and, uh but you know, I, three kids now and my son is now my first son's 19. My kids are 19, 14 and seven. So I, I, yeah, I was scared to become a parent. I didn't ever want to become a parent. It never was something I was uh, aspired to. And now it's the most central focus of my life, you know. So, uh, you know, I've said that if my kids want to have a relationship with me when they're adults, then I will consider my life a success, you know. And I want, I sort of feel like with my kids, I want to be able to stay. Because I felt unsafe. What happened with my relationship with my father is that he, he my fortunes are rising, his were falling. And he then needed, wanted money. And so I was giving him money and it all just it, it inverted our relationship. So I felt suddenly unsafe and I was going out into the world and I was getting further out into the world and further out on the limb of fame. And I felt more untethered all the time. And I would have given anything with it. This is all unconscious, but I would have given anything at the time to be able to turn over my shoulder and see somebody back there going, I got you, you go on, I got you. You know what I mean? And have some of that kind of, and I didn't have that. And that's just the way it was and it's fine and I learned to catch myself you know but if I could be there for my kids doing that then that's my I've had a successful life you know really truly so uh, that's important to me and um 
you know, it took me a long time to learn all that. <laughs> yeah, well, it feels like, yeah, I mean, from their, you know, some of their career choices so far, your children, that they have an admiration for the industry that you went into. You know, they've dabbled, well, not just dabbled, some very successfully in acting. Were you nervous about your kids being involved in the world of show business, in the world of acting? Yeah, the last thing I ever wanted was my kids to be in uh, actors. But, you know, life is cruel. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but they certainly didn't. Like, I grew up, I, I didn't know one in show business when I was growing up. Um, so I, I had no idea what was about them. They they grew up with it, you know, as, as the job. And so they, but um, you still don't know anything until you're actually doing something. You can see something and still not. You think you understand it, but you don't. But, you know, they're young and we'll see what happens. So, like, my son's on the show. It's very successful right now. He's a little dead to me and he's terrific. And my daughter's been on Broadway a number of times. And it's like, I mean, we joke, she's been on Broadway at 13 more than I have my entire life. So, I mean, they're very fast. <laughs> so, uh, it's, but, you know, acting also saved my life when I was 15. You know, so who am I to say? Um, all you can do is kind of support people in what they want to do, you know. And I, I certainly think acting is particularly is a weird beast because there's so many people I've met that say, oh, I wanted to be an actor, but my parents didn't want me to go to law school. And, you know, they have this whims this waxing look of di disappointment. Like, you don't want that. You know, you know what I mean? So if it's what they want to do, more power to them. Do you give them advice? Are you a, you know, a showbiz parent? Are you, you on the sidelines cheering them on, you know, getting them into the spotlight? Yeah, my kids really want, my kids, my kids really want to hear advice from their father. You know? uh, <laughs> I mean, there are certain moments in like, I will tell them stories of what happened to me. Oh, this is my, you know, and they, my daughter jokingly says, oh, another daddy story. Uh, but I will sort of share my experiences to kind of go, it's not you and it's not personal, even though it feels personal. Um, but I try not to give advice to anyone. <laughs> I'd love to talk to you about their relationship with, because I guess, I, I guess uh, right now, you know, this is a time as you're revisiting this time, as they're suddenly seeing you, you know, everywhere doing press, talking about this time again. I think probably one of the overwhelming things I imagine if I was your children was seeing the amount of love and affection that people have for you in that period. I see you go on these television shows, these media appearances to talk about your book and the host's eyes light up. It, it's not just talking to you, it's talking to an entire era and you remind them of such a happy place in their life. What has that experience been like to walk into places where people are just so excited to see you and talk about that time in your life? <laughs> you embarrass me. I, I, I found that very surprising. I've been wonderfully um, touched by it. My kids don't pay any attention. So <laughs> first one, I have found it, and they shouldn't. I mean, they shouldn't. I'm their dad, and that's what it should be. Uh, but I have found it shockingly touching, and I think it's quite sort of, dare I say, healing for me. And not that I was injured, but I mean, I, I found I was so affected by that that time in my life, and you know. And, and negatively to some degree, but that was all my interpretation um, of it. But I found it wonderfully gratifying and, and touching and tender to feel that kind of outpour of affection for, it's not just, I am the avatar of their youth, you know? So they're, they're recalling their own youth and putting that onto me. And that is a, I'm, that's a gift that I, I, I receive. You know what I mean? So it's, 
I've been surprised by how deep that goes to people. So, Andrew, I'm a stand-up comedian by trade, and uh, my parents were very disappointed when I didn't become an accountant. But, I, you know, I wouldn't have got to talk to you if I'd become an accountant. <laughs> but I am fascinated uh, by the idea of, you know, that connection and how you are connected to that moment, you know, because you're absolutely right. You are just this icon of everybody's memories. The reference I make the most, when I told my partner I was going to talk to you, uh, she put on the Pretty in, Pretty in Pink soundtrack. That's where she goes immediately. But of course, for me, it is a movie that is probably not necessarily one of the greatest movies of all time, but I just had such a super affection for it, which is a movie called Weekend at Bernie's. And so um, can you talk to me a little about your relationship with the movie Weekend at Bernie's? Because it is a meme. It is so well remembered. I think it will probably be remembered after I am dead, after you're dead, they're still going to be making Weekend at Bernie's jokes. Well, I think that you're wrong when you say it's not one of the greatest films of all time. Well, look, I was, <laughs> it is. Of course it is one of the greatest films of all time. <laughs> no, I, um, I'm joking. I'm joking. I, I mean, I, I am with you. I mean, Pretty in Pink, yeah, it's a lovely movie. It's fine. Um, Weekend at Bernie's, I love Week. I love Bernie. I mean, somehow, and Bert, the beauty of Bernie... <laughs> is that he seems to be more relevant now than ever. There's something like with memes and everything, he just keeps popping back up. And it's like, you can't keep him dead. He just keeps popping back. He's just like he was in the movie. You know, I, I have great affection because you can't, the beauty of Bernie is you can't even say the title without smiling. You know what I mean? Weekend of Bernie's, you're like, it's just a ridiculous. It was written, the movie was originally called Hot and Cold. And thank God they changed it. I mean, I just, I, I'm with you. I love Bernie. He's my favorite movie, I think, of that. It's just, it's just so stupid. You know, my son, I, I've said this before, but my son saw the film, they don't watch any of my movies, but they, he watched Weekend of Bernie's a number of years ago, and he saw it, and he said, Dad, I love you, but that's the stupidest movie I've ever seen. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, that's the point, dude. I mean, we made two of them. I mean, you know, so... I don't know. I just, any movie that can just make you laugh and just harmlessly is, I'm all for it. Uh, I warned you at the start of this interview that I was going to ask you, the vague conceit of this show is that I ask people if they have a philosophy of any kind. We've talked about a lot already, to be honest, but do you have a, a, a life motto, a life philosophy, some sort of guiding principle that you can relate to anything? You know, I, I, I've always thought as I got older, I would really get yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm still waiting. You know, I really thought I would become more spiritually kind of, you know, disciplined or have this kind of philosophy. I, I, I just, I'm going to let you down. I got nothing here. <laughs> uh, it's okay, Andrew. It's not the first time. So I'm going to ask you some other questions then. You mentioned your Catholicism, but you also mentioned the idea of it being awake to yourself. Um, what do you believe now? What do you think happens when we die? Well, I think there's some sort of kind of, what I always did have a problem about religion is sort of, if I can understand it, then it can't I understand or even conceive of God, then it can't be God. Because how could I conceive of anything? You know what I mean? So it's got to be so far beyond anything that, I, I don't know, I just think there's just a big ball of energy that we're sort of a part of or on the leading edge of, and you just sort of dissolve back into this energy that is, I would like to think is a pure positive energy, you know, and just, uh, that's what I kind of, and, and that you have access to everything before and after and all that. And it's all part of this stew and there's nothing's impossible on, uh, in that, that space.
that feels good. Yeah, that's good. See, there you go. See, we're, we're getting into it now. I don't know how you do, approach that as any kind of dis- spiritual discipline, but that's what it feels like to me. And when I feel like, when, you know, when you get in touch with that thing, whatever that thing is that we call, you know, you're in the, you know, athletes called in the zone or whatever, you're just in touch, you're in sync, and you're just like, and I think when we feel like ourselves to the best of the degree, and suddenly we're expansive, we're generous, we're loving, we're kind, we're empathetic, we're all those things. You're in touch with that thing, right? And so, and then like when you meet people, it's what falling in love is. You meet someone and suddenly you want to be that way with that person. And so that, then you're in love with them and somehow they've triggered that in you. And I don't, I don't know, it's been embarrassing now, but that, that is what I believe in. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. Firstly, when you die, put in your will that people have to like drag your body around for a weekend and party with it. I think that's the only appropriate way that you can go out. I think you're right. That would be the appropriate thing to do with me. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone has to put on a Hawaiian shirt. This is, these are my plans. This is just how I want to go out. Um, often when you have children, you start to think about death. It becomes more present in your mind. Are you a person who thinks about death? Is it a topic that is you know, in your thoughts? Well, I think about it more. I think because I'm so damn old to have a seven-year-old kid i'm 58 years old and i have a seven-year-old kid so i think about it only in relation to him and uh it just makes you realize how time is precious you know that's all i really when i think about so i i think about him and so i gotta stay in good shape (laughs) well am i right in saying that you had covid at the start of the pandemic i did yeah i had COVID right at the beginning in the march last march right at the beginning when we all thought we were all going to die everyone was going to die so that was i had a terrifying night of that um where i just thought i was going to die and that was kind of crazy but uh but i was very lucky it passed very quickly and it was fine but there was a moment you know that fear came back and that I talked about earlier in such a potent way. I'm like, Jesus, it's never far from you, that fear. Uh, you talked about that idea of being in the zone when you're being your best self. D- d- describe to me what that looks like. What is when you, what are you doing? What, who are you surrounded by when you feel like you are being your best self? Well, I thought, you know, when I'm traveling often, you know, it's often easy when you're traveling because you just somehow, you know, one of the beauties of traveling is that you discover wonder again. You're constantly like, oh my, you turn the corner to look at the Trevi Fountain, even if you've seen it before, you kind of go, oh my God. And you you, you look at that thing and you turn and look at your wife and you see have that look of wonder and you see the look of wonder in her eyes and you realize why you fell in love with that person. They're them again, that person again. And so I think wonder is whenever anything you can do to cultivate awe and wonder is a bit nature always does it, right? And travel does it for me and occasionally work does it for me and occasionally you know making love with my wife does it for me and you know (laughs) anytime you cultivate wonder and awe you're close you're close right and so i try and do as many things as i can to you know the problem the the challenge is avoiding things that beat you down (laughs) you know humdrumness and beating you but i suppose on the other hand of that you know Zen isn't looking for God and whatever Zen is looking for God in the dishes, you know, do the dishes. And as I suppose so the answer is being present, right? The more we're present, anything can be have wonder and awe in it. But, you know, it's easier when it sort of comes at you from the outside, you know. As somebody who's repositioned their relationship with 
show business in regard to from being you know a very visible you know star you said it's an incredible thing you're the center of the universe again you know like like you were raised like when you were a kid suddenly you're the center of the universe then you moved behind the camera you know you're making other people the center of the universe you've literally stepped behind the scenes was that a very conscious transition like even just in mindset which is i am now not the star of this it is my job to facilitate other people's moment in the spotlight yeah there's something i like about that you know and um whenever i walk i i never walk on a sound stage which i i I think all the things we were just talking about before, gratitude is also a really easy access into the best way to get into that. I, I, whenever I walk on a stage, I always try and pause and not be in too much of a rush to go do what I'm doing to just stop and just, just because be, being on a sound stage is you're in the movie business, you're in the TV, you're in show. It's like there is something, it, it is built to make TV shows and movies. And so it's, it's still very exciting to me to walk on a soundstage every time. I always try to be actively conscious to what I'm about crossing the threshold. Just go, thank you. Like, cause I'm very lucky to get to do what I do. And so, but yes, I love being able to facilitate people to have them just go, Whoa, that was that note you gave me was so good. And I saw it, you know, and I see it happen in them and I see that look in their eye when they're acting. And I know what that feels like so well to help to have them capture that. That's yeah, that's a thrilling feeling. It's like with your kids when you sort of do something, facilitate them to do something, and they're like, Oh my god, except your kids don't have any gratitude, but then you know, <laughs> <laughs> but that's as that's you know, one of life's lessons that your kids are not going to say thank you, you know. And um, so I, I do like that feeling, I do like that feeling very much, yeah. Uh, you, you seem to have a, a good sense of gratitude, a good sense of positivity. Do you have that in general about? The world. I mean, we look around the planet. We've just been through a global pandemic. Obviously, things like climate change is threatening us. There's a whole bunch of challenges that, you know, maybe you and I won't face, you know, directly, but that your kids' generation are definitely going to have to deal with. Do you have that same gratitude and optimism when you look at the world that they are coming into? Well, I, I, I think we have to do something about all the global climate stuff, but I also think the world has a way of rejuvenating itself, much we underestimate it a little bit. Um, doesn't mean we can still keep pounding it, but I, I have, um, but the only time I don't generally is when I look at politics. And so I've tried to less and less look at politics. You know, I get swallowed up in, like so many of us did in the Trump of it all at that time. I was like, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I, why am I looking at this? I, I just, you know, and you can get stuck in it. And so I've tried to actively disengage from politics. And so my cork floats back a lot quicker <laughs> when I'm not, <laughs> they're just people I don't respect. And I find them all liars. And so I, uh, and they're petty little power people and they just want power and power. Anybody that's hungry for power is I'm not interested in. It's interesting to me, the idea of writing a book, uh, you know, going back to a time, sitting there and deciding how much you will reveal about it, you know, what direction you will take. And I think that underneath that all, there's also an underlying message, perhaps that reveals itself or perhaps that you sat down with in the first place. But what do you want people to get out of Brat? What, what do you hope that when they take Andrew McCarthy to bed with them at night, they wake up in the morning? What do they wake up with? Well, I, yes, the story's not that fun and, you know, whatever, but just another, just a human connection, you know, I just want to, you just want to, whether that was your time, those moments, you know, that, those 80s kind of thing was your youth, whatever, sure, that's fine and great, 
but just a connection with another human being. I would love when somebody would pick it up who had nothing to do, didn't know anything about those movies, and just sort of they, there was nothing else to read, and they picked it up, and they just went, wow, there's a human that I would never have thought. I think all everybody has got a story that we just don't know. We think we know people so quickly, and like, wow, who knew? And I, I totally identify with this person that I have nothing in common with. And that, to me, would be then I've had a job well done, you know? Uh, I'm aware that we only have five minutes left and this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for doing this. I have some standard questions that I ask at the end of every episode. So the first one is based on, uh, as close as I have to an inspirational saying, I have a little uh, you know, a piece of metal on my desk and inscribed into it, it just says, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? So it's just meant to remind me that, you know, when I sit down to work on something that I shouldn't be thinking about how to make it successful. I should be thinking about how to make it and then put it out into the world and it will be successful or it won't be successful. But that's not the point of it. Can I ask you that same question? Is there anything in your life that you haven't attempted that you would attempt if you knew you were guaranteed of success? I'd be a ballroom dancer. Really? Really? Is that, <laughs> is that, is that the one? I don't know. It just came. I, I've never thought it before, but when you said that, there's something about, I did a movie once where I had to learn a ballroom dancing and I love, I was so happy doing it that, um, I don't know. I, 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 I don't think about failing. I don't know. So yeah, I guess a ballroom dancer. <laughs> okay. So can we just circle back on, I don't think about failing. You don't think about failing. It doesn't enter your mind when you choose to do things. I don't think so. I think I'm afraid of so many things. And maybe that fear is that I'm not afraid that I'll fail. I'm afraid that I'll get hurt or poached. I always, I often have a fear that something's going to come at me like that. Wow. So I have that fear, but, but that's not a fear of failing. That's just a fear of being poached in a certain way. Um, and I don't know where that comes. That may come from, you know, my youth, my childhood, my father. I don't, I don't know, but it's a different than a fear of failing. Um, I think that fear probably prevents me from doing things, certainly. Uh, so it's probably, I guess, the same thing. But um, I don't know. Uh, I have an magic eraser and I can erase any project from your past, you know, any moment from your past that you don't want there anymore. What would you like me to use my magic eraser on? You know, I wish I didn't drink the last couple of years that I drank, but it so made me who I am that I, and I regret some of the, pain I caused other people that I love, but it made me who I am. You know, the very bad things are the things that we grow out of that make us who we, you know, so I am grateful for all of it. You know, I'm grateful for all of it. I regret some of the pain that I caused. Like I said, some of the selfish pain I caused the people that I loved the last few years of my drinking, but I'm glad it happened to me. Um, so nothing really. Uh, the book is called Brat. It is an incredible read. Uh, this has been so much fun. Thank you for your generosity in doing this. I know that you're doing a million interviews all over the world and I appreciate that you've taken some time to talk to me today. This is how the show always ends. I have a time machine. I can take you into the future. I can take you into the past. I can go... You can go and, you know, visit some place you've always wanted to visit. You can go back and give yourself some Back to the Future style advice. I don't really mind what you do with the time machine, but where would you like to go on my time machine, Andrew McCarthy. Ooh, everywhere, I wanna go everywhere. <laughs> I wanna go everywhere. Uh, I don't know. 
ancient Egypt. I don't know. I want to go where where life is bursting. I don't know. Uh, yeah, we definitely. I, uh, yeah, sure. I'll go to ancient Egypt. <laughs> and what what's the first thing day one when you arrive in ancient Egypt? What what is the first thing that you want to see? What is the first thing that you want to check out or verify or look at? What's going on with these pyramids? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Cleopatra, come here. What's the story? <laughs> uh, Andrew McCarthy, it has been an incredible pleasure. Thank you very much for doing this today. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.